0: and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values,
1: and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Well, good morning. Uh, It is a pleasure to join you. Thank you for taking the time to participate uh and paul it's good to see you mike it's 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 good to see you and 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 what a testament to the the wonders of technology that we're able to have uh an intimate conversation thousands of miles apart uh and 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 i'm pretty sure that 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 through the electrons this qualifies as, as social distancing um you know the fact that we're able to do this so seamlessly so effortlessly is really a testament to the opportunities that have been presented by this enormous crisis. As a nation, we're facing two simultaneous crises, a public health crisis, the coronavirus pandemic that's killed over 300,000 people, and an economic crisis, over 36 million people who've lost their jobs as the economy has ground to a halt. and, And unusually, in terms of economic crises, this one is not the cause of, of some fundamental weakness in the economy it's not a recession that was driven by the misallocation of capital it is instead the direct result of government policies that were put in place to fight the pandemic uh, and we are seeing now millions of americans out of work over 20 percent of the american workforce has lost their job in the last two months that is unprecedented uh, in in our lifetimes, you have to go back to the Great Depression to find a comparable economic catastrophe that has struck the American economy. Not only that, but we have millions of small businesses that have either gone out of business or are on the verge of bankruptcy. And so the crisis level is enormous. Uh, but that being said, that also means the task going forward is enormous. Now, Mike and I and all the members of the Senate, we have worked together on four separate pieces of legislation that all of which passed overwhelmingly with with overwhelming bipartisan support. Those pieces of legislation were, they're often referred to as stimulus legislation, but but that's not in fact what I think they are. Um, I don't call them stimulus. And in fact, what I call them is relief legislation because they were designed to provide immediate relief short-term emergency bridge loans to individuals and families and small businesses to help them get through the immediate crises they were facing the stage we're at now there are some on the democratic side of the aisle who want to continue shoveling money and i will tell you the quantity of money that congress has spent in the last two months in response to this crisis takes your breath away and and for both mike and i we are at times literally unable to breathe given the quantity of, of debt that our nation is is taking to try to get through this crisis the next stage however what where we are now i believe the next legislation should be recovery legislation it should be focused not on relief not on spending more money and just shoveling money at the problem we can't fix it that way instead the next stage should be focused on tax reform and regulatory reform in other words lessening the burdens on small businesses and job creators because the only way out of this mess economically speaking is to get people back to work and that means we need to be looking for policies that help the small businesses that are just starting to open up their doors again that are just starting to see customers again policies that help them survive and 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 rehire their employees and hopefully grow and thrive we've got to unleash the engine of the american free enterprises the only thing strong enough to overcome this economic catastrophe and i will say on the reg reform side one good place to start is every regulation federal regulation state regulation local legislation that in the last three months has been suspended because of the crisis, to deal with the crisis, I think we should all start with a presumption that those regulations should stay suspended going forward. That if it was deemed helpful for that regulation to be suspended during the time of crisis, then it should still be helpful during recovery. And I really think that's what our focus needs to be, it is how do we empower small businesses to drive free enterprise forward and turn our economy around and get people back to work.
0: Senator Lee, do you have any opening remarks? Indeed. Uh, thanks so much. It really is an honor and a privilege to be with you and to be here with my friend, Senator Ted Cruz. I, I agree with every word he just uttered, including the words, but, and, and the. Usually when I use a sentence like that, it's with <laughs> the word not in it. So it's uh, it's great to be here with Ted. Yeah, look, um, one of the many things that he said that is so right and so appropriate for our time is uh, the notion that we're not going to fix our economy w- with with more government spending. Uh, and we're not going to fix our economy with more government programs. What we need is to get government out of the way so that Americans can start helping each other again. And that's why I have co-sponsored, along with Senator Cruz, uh, a, a bill called the Right to Test Act. This is legislation that uh, would let states approve and distribute diagnostic tests when the state or the federal government has declared a public health emergency. It's also why I co-sponsored something called the PRIME Act, uh, which which will help farmers sell their livestock for higher prices and, uh, and lower meat prices, ultimately for consumers in grocery stores. Right now there's a really weird bottleneck at meat packing plants. And what the prime Act does is to allow states to regulate slaughter facilities for meat sold uh, within the same state, we have to remember that the federal government was never intended to be this this all encompassing regulatory body that would regulate even purely local activities like labor, mining, manufacturing, and agriculture. It certainly wasn 't meant to be the comprehensive exclusive regulator of things like meat packing, and yet it is the federal commandeering of the meat packing uh, licensing and regulatory uh, uh, business in this nation that has resulted in this bottleneck. It results for higher prices for consumers, lower prices for those who actually produce meat. And uh, that's a problem. The PRIME Act would help us deal with that. We also have to protect businesses from uh, uh, the the problems that would otherwise arise. Uh, Protect those very businesses that want to reopen from trial lawyers who are trying to make a quick buck. That's why I support the idea of reforming our federal courts um, uh, to to allow for what's called minimal diversity jurisdiction. This would allow for more businesses to move to federal court where it's often easier to defend against trivial lawsuits. The Constitution itself in Article 3, Section 2 sets out the formula for that. And it says that uh, when, when you've got plaintiffs from one state and defendants from another state, uh, you ought to be able to have in litigation that would otherwise be pending before state court. You ought to be able to have access to federal courts because there's a little bit more consistency between one federal court and another. I think we're going to touch on this a little bit later, but our environmental laws, specifically the, the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA as, it, as it's frequently been called, have been weaponized by radical environmentalists. And they've been weaponized in order to raise the costs, and cause significant delays to all federally funded infrastructure projects throughout the country. You want to know why it takes billions uh, of additional dollars and many years longer to complete the same infrastructure projects that our grandparents built? Sometimes in a very short time frame, just a, uh, a few decades ago, well, NEPA is often part of the problem. And I'm working on legislation that would set a shot clock on planning and litigation to speed up the environmental review process while still protecting the environment. Those two things are not a bit at odds with each other. And in fact, when we look at uh, many of our peer nations uh, that, that have uh, aggressive NEPA like environmental protection laws, um, w- we stand out like a sore thumb as a country that doesn't put any time constraints on this process. And yet, those countries, I'm thinking of countries like Canada. Uh, are, are not exactly environmental hellholes. These are places that protect the environment and at the same time provide a, a, a reasonable set of expectations that consumers and businesses can look forward to in the economy. I think as well, we ought to look at the rules and regulations that, um, that Ted uh, referred to that, that have been suspended during the crisis. Um, included within these are many of the occupational licensing regulations. We should ask ourselves why it is that these regulations were put in place in the first place if if, uh, they are appropriate to be dropped during a real emergency. Now, if we can see this crisis as an opportunity for systematic regulatory reform, then our economy can and I believe will come back stronger than ever. I continue to believe that our best days as Americans remain yet ahead of us. But in order to do that, we've got to make the right choices. Thank you.
2: Senator Lee, thank you very much. Uh, Let me ask a question, and this is a toss-up to both of you. You both signed a May 14 letter to the Senate minority and majority leaders, urging them to support statutory reform to provide regulatory relief for businesses. In the letter, you referred to, quote, paperwork reduction, unquote, and removing outmoded compliance requirements. Now, I know you've both mentioned several different possibilities uh, of reforms that we should make. Um, do you have any specific examples in mind? And would it be possible, you think, to have those included uh, in legislation that we'll see passed into law before the end of this year?
0: I, yeah, I'll, I'll start with that if you'd like. Um... The, the most concrete example that I'm thinking of is my NEPA reform legislation, which I'm finalizing right now and should be introducing in the Senate very soon. Um, and this would do a number of things uh, with the NEPA process, but the most important reform in it would be to limit the amount of time that can be taken up at each stage of uh, environmental review under the National Environmental Policy Act, because right now there's no limit to it. and so. Agencies be, between a combination of agency action, court action, and preparations uh, for those two separate venues. Um, it's it's not uncommon in this country to see a uh, a project. Sometimes it's a a road or a highway. Sometimes it's an energy project uh, or something much more pedestrian. But it it's not all that uncommon these days to see that taking more than a decade. And there's no reason for that. It, we don't end up with a cleaner environment as a result of it taking that long. The review process itself makes sure we don't wreak havoc on the environment where we might otherwise. But there's no reason why that should have to take a decade to discern. So I put shot clocks in place. I also put in place um, uh, some requirements that would allow the federal government to use corresponding um, uh, state law um, document productions uh, as a substitute for what the federal government would otherwise be providing. If a state has already done something very similar, the federal government ought to be able to handle that. This would reduce the overall volume of paperwork. And it is something that could be put into a phase four uh, legislative package, particularly if there ends up being an infrastructure component to that.
2: Senator Cruz, would you like to answer?
1: So I emphatically agree with everything Mike said, and, and let me take several different pieces. Uh, NEPA reform, speeding up environmental review. Uh, you know, Mike rightly mentioned that, that, that the process of, of building any project can be delayed years or even decades. And, and the way the system operates now, it's not designed actually to, to protect the environment. And in, in, instead, what it's designed to do is allow activist groups to use litigation to shut down a project, to shut down development. It's used as a tool simply to kill a project um a little over a week ago i I had a phone call with elon musk uh the ceo and founder of tesla and spacex uh and and elon is 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 hardly a a a right-wing conservative activist uh but but he has publicly expressed his displeasure with the headquarters of tesla's in california and they shut down uh their factory there and he's expressed his displeasure with wanting to open up uh his factory and 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 he had publicly expressed an interest in you know what if california keeps doing this we may just have to move our tesla headquarters out of out of california and maybe to texas and so i called ilana and said hey if you want to come to texas we would love to have you we're, we're, we're very texas is real simple we love jobs anyone that is coming and creating jobs we love to have you in addition to tesla and I, and I think there's a very real possibility i am hopeful that, that we will say, see tesla come to texas but in addition to tesla's spacex has very substantial operations already in texas uh this week today we've got a spacex launch the first launch of u.s astronauts from u.s soil on 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 a u.s rocket in over a decade Uh, SpaceX will be launching from Cape Canaveral, but but they've also got a launch facility in South Texas. And Elon and I talked about their desire to substantially expand the launch facility in South Texas to create even more jobs in South Texas. But he said, you know, the biggest problem is the environmental review, we can't expand the operation until we get through the enormous red tape and bureaucracy. And so I think speeding that up uh is is incredibly important um to give you a sense of scope i actually pulled some numbers so between the year 2000 and 2016 the epa issued a total of 22 rules estimated by omb to cost one billion dollars or more that was a total of 104.4 billion dollars every other federal agency combined issued only 19 of those rule, rules that cost an estimated 34.4 billion dollars so to put it in in perspective EPA alone issued more of those rules than every other agency and more than 3 times as costly to the economy and so i think speeding up that review and i think the administration has made positive steps in that regard. And what's interesting, Mike and I both serve on on the Commerce Committee and Judiciary Committee together. When you bring in local mayors, when you bring in local elected officeholders, elected Democrats, inevitably they express frustration with. They want to build a road. They want to build a bridge. And they say it's almost impossible that the review it delays to get a permit. It goes on and on and on and on. And and I know Mike and I both had those conversations with elected Democrats where I said, look, it's your party that's putting all of those roadblocks in the way. And I I do think this is an opportunity to speed that up. And it's an opportunity we should take advantage of.
2: Senators, it seems uh, possible that one of the reasons the environmental impact statements that get written resemble war and peace in terms of their magnitude and the amount of time it takes to write them. Uh, is that agencies might be afraid that unless they do work of that length, the courts will strike it down. So that brings up some general regulatory reform questions. Uh, There have been a variety of large-scale proposals, such as a requirement that Congress adopt any rule that has more than a $100 million impact on the economy. Could you each address what you think the best way of trying to deal with these broader general regulatory issues are so that businesses can actually start hiring people again, whether uh, to, uh, by eliminating environmental uh, obstacles or others. Senator Cruz, let me let you go. Oh, uh, Senator Lee, if you want to do that, that's fine. I just thought I'd let Senator Cruz go first this time.
1: I I, I feel confident we agree on this. So, so either one, Mike, go ahead. If, if i had
0: um or were given the power to pass any single piece of legislation now pending um, with the wave of a magic wand uh it would be the RAINs act it's an acronym that stands for regulations from the executive in need of scrutiny and it does exactly what you just described paul uh, which is time uh federal regulation deemed economically significant, costing over a hundred million dollars to comply with, were put in place. It could not be self-executing. It wouldn't take effect as operative law until such time as both houses of Congress had affirmatively passed it and submitted it to the president for signature or veto. Uh, If we were to pass something like that, it would do a couple of important things that need to happen. Number one, it would restore the letter and spirit of Article 1, Section 1, Clause 1, the very first clause of the first section of the first article of the Constitution says, all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which shall consist of a a Senate and a House of Representatives. Article 1, Section 7 then goes on to explain the legislative formula for enacting federal law. You cannot do it without something passing the House and the Senate and being submitted to the president for signature or veto. And of course, if it's vetoed, it can pass only if two thirds of both houses decide to overturn it. My point is this, over the last few decades, Congress has become increasingly reliant on not passing actual laws, but passing platitudes and passing laws that say things like, we shall have good laws in area X and we hereby delegate to commission or agency or department Y, the the task of writing and interpreting and enforcing uh, rules carrying the uh, force of generally applicable law uh, that are good. Uh, now make it so. Uh, The the problem with these uh, laws is that not only are they put in place through a constitutionally suspect mechanism, but they are also suspect as a matter of policy and public acceptability for the same reasons that they violate the letter and spirit of the constitution. Meaning these men and women who inhabit our federal agencies, our federal departments, the federal bureaucrats who write these these laws uh, are well-educated, well-intentioned, hardworking and highly specialized, but they don't work for you. You can fire your Congressman every two years. You can fire your senators uh, every six years. You cannot fire a bureaucrat. They don't stand for election. They're not really accountable to anyone who does in turn stand for election. And so uh, this is really something that we need to do. It's really neither Republican nor Democratic, neither liberal nor conservative. This is simply a constitutional mandate that we ought to be fulfilling. Oh, and it also has the added benefit uh, because of the fact that it would bring elected officials back into the accountability chain of lawmaking, of making sure that when we do something, when we put something in place in federal law that's going to be really expensive, that somebody whose name is on the ballot is going to be on the line for putting that there. Uh, the, the U.S. regulatory system costs the American economy about $2 trillion a year. Some say it's more uh, it's very difficult to ascertain. But those costs are not borne simply by large blue-chip corporations or by uh, uh, billionaires. Uh, you know, Picture the monopoly game piece figures. It, 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 they're borne really disproportionately by America's poor and middle class who pay higher prices on goods and services, and they also pay for it through diminished wages, unemployment, and underemployment. If we just put in place a reform like the RAINS Act, uh would be in a much better place because once again you'd have the american people being in charge of their own government senator cruz
1: so mike mike is exactly right on that when it comes to the Rains act he and i have both uh fought for years uh trying to press congress to pass it yet you know when 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 mike talked about the lack of accountability in the current system sadly Uh, For many career politicians in Washington, both Democrats and Republicans, that's not a bug, that's a feature. uh, That enables rules to be promulgated with no accountability. And from the perspective of the citizenry, from the perspective of we the people, that's exactly backwards. Look, neither Mike nor I, and I expect nobody else on this call, is an anarchist. We actually believe that that there is a need for government, that the constitution establishes a government, that there are some regulations that that, that are needed. But if there is to be a rule or regulation that has the consequence of destroying someone's job, the person who implements that rule needs to be accountable to the voters. The power of the RAINS Act, it simply says structurally that any economic regulation that is gonna cost hundred million dollars or more, has to be affirmatively approved from Congress. And that means maybe it's the case that, that, that there is a particular rule that is justified, that, 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 that needs to be in place to prevent, look, nobody wants the air and water poisoned, we don't want our kids killed. Uh, there are certainly rules that when it comes to pollution, air and water and the like, that, that, that we would all agree upon are good rules. But as a matter of democratic accountability if your job is going to be taken away as a result you need to be able to look me in the eye you need to be able to look mike in the eye and ask why did you vote to take away my job and if you don't like the answer you ought to have the ability to throw the bums out and that check is incredibly important right now the elected officials get to say gosh you know i i I can't help you it's just the unelected bureaucracy that 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 destroyed your jobs and and mike is exactly right also that the the people whose jobs are impacted the most are working class americans uh are are blue-collar americans or the men and women with calluses uh on their hands you know one of the the most dramatic political shifts of the last decade is the the modern democratic party chose between two political groups that were typically favored children of the democrats they chose between california environmentalist billionaires or union bosses and union members and what democrats have done in the last decade is they decided they wanted the money from the california billionaires more than the jobs for the blue-collar union members and they counted on the union bosses to whip the votes So they could vote to take away the jobs of millions of steel workers, millions of oil field workers, millions of truckers, millions of construction workers, millions of of, of men and women who who work for a living. Um, That, those workers, I believe as as Republicans, we ought to be the party of jobs. We ought to be the people fighting for those men and women who wanna provide for their family, wanna provide for their kids. And, And let me make one other point on this. You know who's also hurt by all these regulations? The environment. Uh, let's take, for example, the Endangered Species Act. So Endangered Species Act, it's got a great name and it's got a great purpose. Listen, all of us would like to protect endangered species. I, I don't know anyone that sits around twirling their uh, their mustache and laughing at, at species being, being driven off planet Earth. These are all God's creations and we should we to be good stewards of the Earth. Here's the irony. If a particular species is listed as an endangered species, that is about the worst thing that can happen to that species. The odds suddenly rise dramatically that that species is going to go from endangered to extinct. Why? Because our current regulatory system creates enormous economic incentive to get rid of that little critter. Because the Endangered Species Act, all right, if you've got a if you've got a proposal, you want to drill for oil and gas, you want to build a new home development, you want to like SpaceX expand a spaceport. If there's an activist group that wants to stop it, all they got to do is go search that area and find one critter, one snail, one little fish, one bird, one lizard, whatever they can find, any critter and list it. And they can stop the entire development. And by and by the way, the economic incentive you create is for any landowner If you find one of those animals, your incentive is get rid of it, kill that damn thing, because it's gonna stop any economic development you wanna do. Here's reform and legislation I've long advocated. Create economic incentives to grow endangered populations. And that's actually something Ilan and I discussed as well. Um, I've drafted a safe harbor to the Endangered Species Act that says if there's an Endangered Species Act in a project, and if the developer if the landowner mitigates in other words grows the population not just to the current level but expands the population even more so west texas there's been repeated uh uh, litigation trying to shut down oil and gas drilling based on a little lizard that is out there i said look we ought to have an incentive all right fine if we've got a diminishing population of lizards breed the lizards as you know i've joked you know put up a disco ball, play some Barry White, and let the little lizards do what comes naturally. I mean, grow the population. Now, I don't think the critter has necessarily an entitlement to be on that exact square inch of land. It may be that you find a suitable habitat nearby and you invest real money. You invest real money to, okay, let's expand the lizard population. Let's expand whatever population it is and grow it. That actually would help the environment. And the interesting thing is, the activists who bring these lawsuits are not interested in solutions that grow the population. Their objective is to stop the economic development. That is a radical objective, and and it is contrary to what we need right now, which is jobs and economic growth.
2: Senators, let me ask you about the flip side of the problem that you've just been speaking about, which is one that's been created by the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has created some doctrines that say an agency's interpretation of the law uh, sometimes has to be accepted by the courts. They did this in this famous Chevron case, and they reaffirmed that within the last year in a case called Kaiser. If that's a, Is that a problem? And if that's a problem, how do uh, you and Congress uh, go about addressing that? Letting Because what it is now is courts can't oftentimes issue the final decision on a matter. It's up to the agency. And if Congress is also giving the agency extraordinary authority in the delegations, uh, you are just aggravating the problem that it's no longer governance by Congress. So how do we address that aspect of the problem? Senator, uh, who wants to go first? It's a field of choice.
0: I can do that. Uh, There's a legislative proposal called the Separation of Powers Restoration Act uh, that I developed a couple of years ago. I don't remember who ended up filing it. It was either me or Chuck Grassley uh, who was uh, listed first and the other was listed second. The Separation of Powers Restoration Act would eliminate the so-called Chevron Doctrine, so named for the Supreme Court decision issued in the mid-1980s called Chevron versus Natural Resources Defense Council. The Chevron decision resulted in the Supreme Court adopting a a rule that says, basically, as as long as an agency hasn't acted in a way that's really, really wrong, that's obviously wrong, that's clearly wrong, then we, the courts, are not going to use the tools at our disposal to interpret the law. We're instead just going to defer to a federal agency's uh, interpretation of the law. Uh, of its uh, of its own regulations and of statutes enacted by Congress. Now, this is a bad doctrine. Uh, it's not good to tell judges that they can't use the tools that judges ordinarily employ in order to interpret federal law. And so it, it, it ought not be the case that federal agencies, of all litigants who appear before courts, ought to be given unprecedented deference. Now, there is an argument in favor of of keeping Chevron. I'm just not a very big fan of it because, well, it's not a very good argument. The argument is, well, without Chevron, it'd be more difficult for the courts to keep up. And at the end of the day, this is Congress's problem that Congress needs to fix. Um, Well, on the first point, federal courts are more than up to the challenge of uh uh, undertaking some additional work in order to interpret statutes and not blindly deferring to a federal agency unless it's obviously wrong as to the second point there's a point there it just doesn't mean that we should cling to the chevron doctrine because it's wrong Um, what it does mean is that members of congress ought to be more conscientious in enacting legislation so that we actually provide enough legislative teeth rather than just deferring to agency discretion on everything See, part of the problem is that for decades, you've had members of Congress of both houses and of both political parties, literally senates, houses of representatives and white houses of every conceivable partisan combination who have been willing to just defer entire questions off to an agency. That needs to stop because it's one of the things that's perpetuating the Chevron doctrine. But we can do that without even waiting for the courts to themselves abandon the doctrine by enacting the Separation of Powers Restoration Act.
1: and i share many of the concerns that have been raised by chevron we've seen more and more discussion about chevron deference and 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 reversing that decision um although at the same time i'm one that 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 doesn't think that that reversing chevron would be a panacea that, that that it would solve all the problems uh at the end of the day our system of government only works when you have elected officials who are accountable to the people and an active and engaged citizenry. Uh, the system works better when elected officials take responsibility for their decisions. That's the reason why I support something like the RAINS Act, because it puts people whose names are on the ballot in the difficult position of making a choice. Um, without Chevron, it matters greatly what kind of judges you have on the bench so chevron itself was a reaction and it was a judicial reaction to judicial activism to article 3 judges who were engaged in policy making who were themselves resolving uh policy issues and trying to take the place of the elected legislature and we have seen judicial activism really start to rise up in the courts starting in the 1960s and the 1970s And and that's not the role of the judiciary. Both Mike and I uh, are are passionate uh, about nominating and confirming strong constitutionalists to the federal bench. If you have judges who themselves are gonna exercise restraint, who are not going to step in and decide policy questions on their own, then getting rid of Chevron has some real benefits because it makes the hard policy decision-making Uh, occur in the legislative branch. Uh, If you don't have constitutionalists on the court, if you have activists on the court, uh, getting rid of Chevron can be quite problematic. Uh, We have seen, for example, during the last three and a half years of the Trump administration, uh, practically every step that the executive has taken, including steps that are clearly and explicitly authorized in federal law and given to the executive to make, almost inevitably are challenged in litigation and we've seen activist judges try to strike down step after step after step the administration has taken um if you look at the area of immigration congress has given the president wide authority on immigration and yet especially the ninth circuit which has long been the most left-wing activist court of appeals in the country we've seen judges that, that, that have basically joined the resistance they've decided to hate trump And so, never mind what the statutes say, they're going to step in and say, no, this is bad immigration policy. Uh, Probably the most ludicrous example of that is the litigation over DACA. DACA, you'll recall, is executive amnesty that President Obama decreed. For years, activists had asked Obama, would he grant amnesty to those here illegally just based on executive fiat? And, And Obama had said over and over again, I don't have the power to do that. I don't have the authority to do that. He said i am not a king and then suddenly i guess his political advisors decided it was good for him to do that and then he became a king and he decreed that for a certain subset of people here illegally the executive would not enforce the laws would disregard the laws adopted by congress and in fact the executive would would essentially print fraudulent work papers for people here illegally, that statute says cannot work here illegally, the executive would give them a document that nonetheless reports to authorize them to work illegally. So that was challenged in court. So fast forward to the Trump administration. One of the decisions the president makes, right decision, is to suspend DACA. We're no longer going to refuse to enforce immigration laws. Instead, the executive is going to follow the laws on the book. Now, in a true Alice in Wonderland, through the looking glass moment, the Ninth Circuit proceeds to say, it is illegal for the president to follow the law. That Trump cannot say he will follow the law, instead, he must continue to abide by Obama's statement to ignore the law. And and that is, is still in litigation now, but it gives an example of, there's no basis based on actual federal statutes, based on anything resembling law to say the executive cannot follow the law that 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 is that is jumbled idiocy to even make that argument and yet it is where resistant judges find themselves and so the chevron if, issue is complicated i i support reigning in chevron but without good judges We don't get to the outcome we want, which is democratically elected and accountable officials making hard and important public policy decisions.
2: Senators, I want to turn in a minute or two to questions from the audience, but I would like to just commend you for your remarks about trying to make sure that the economy takes care of little people. As a matter of personal privilege, I've thought that if it weren't for the people working in grocery stores and pharmacies or the people driving trucks to fill the shelves in grocery stores and pharmacies, the nation would now be in chaos. And it's these little people that are probably the greatest uh, benefit we have going now and one of the least, uh, I think, appreciated. Everyone knows that the healthcare professionals are putting their lives at risk, but the, these little blue-collar people, the people who get their hands dirty, deserve a great deal of credit. And I know one area where oftentimes they're hurt is occupational licensing. And I know Senator uh, Lee and Senator Cruz, it's an area that you would like to see reformed. Well, that brings up to mind this question, and it's a question dealing with telemedicine because the states generally license the practice of medicine. But given what's happened over the last two months, is telemedicine an idea whose time has finally come? Physiology is the same in all 50 states. Surgical procedures are the same in all 50 states. Pharmaceuticals are the same in all 50 states. And all medical school graduates have to pass the same national exam. Is it time for Congress to examine telemedicine? And if so, what should we do as a nation? to make it happen.
1: Paul, I just want to remind you, you said physiology is the same in all 50 states. Just remember, everything's bigger in Texas.
2: My bad. My bad.
0: (laughs) With that notable exception, uh, you're right. Um, It's not like it would be in courts um, where if you had to admit someone to practice law in one part of the country, they had to be admitted somewhere else. An argument can be made even there. Uh, but with regard to medicine, there's no reason why somebody practicing in Massachusetts or New York shouldn't be able to treat somebody in Wyoming uh, or Montana. Uh, and in fact, um, one of the big divides that now exists in this country could be taken down, not just economically, but also geographically. People in some parts of the country don't always have access to as many doctors or as many specialists in an area uh, uh, that they might really need. Um, And so, yeah, I think this is an idea whose time has come and has probably been here for a few years. We just haven't noticed it. Uh, But this is part of a trend that Americans throughout the country are waking up to the fact that in many, many instances, a lot more instances than not, occupational licensing serves to entrench incumbents more than it does to protect the public. I had a constituent recently point out to me that the more important the um, the license uh, or, or the more um, the the less you would want somebody uh performing a certain procedure without adequate training, the less likely it is that the license itself is going to be the distinguishing characteristic for the end user, for example, this poor person pointed out to me that in one sense. The license to fly an airplane uh, that that anyone could get uh, could allow somebody to, to operate either a small Cessna or a 747 jumbo jet. It's up to the owner of the jumbo jet to decide whether or not that person who has the pilot's license operates the jumbo jet. So too with physicians. Once somebody has a medical degree and is a board certified medical doctor, he or she may be able to undertake certain procedures. But if you're getting a specific type of surgery, you're going to be looking not to whether that person has an occupational license as a medical doctor, but uh, the experience and the training and the recommendations that that person has. And so I think in the case of telemedicine, that's especially important. I think consumers can do a good job. Uh, I'm not suggesting abolishing all occupational licensing standards, although it's debatable whether that would be a net uh, benefit or harm to the country, but we don't have to go that far. Certainly when it comes to telemedicine, we need this in place. The American people need access to it now, especially given that they're afraid to go out in in public for fear of uh, contaminating others or being contaminated
1: themselves. Uh, uh, Occupational licensing, I think, often serves as a barrier to opportunity and it hurts the most vulnerable among among us. in a prior life, back 20 years ago, in the early early um, 2001 to 2003, uh, I was the head of policy at the Federal Trade Commission in the George W. Bush administration. And the the FTC is charged with defending consumers and defending competition. And 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 so uh, I chaired a series of public hearings on barriers to e-commerce, and we looked at 10 different industries. Uh, every one of the industries, we, lo- we looked at telemedicine, we looked at education, we looked at contact lenses, we looked at at, at funerals and caskets, uh, we looked at beer and wine, those, those are five of them just off the top of my head. Every every one of them had the identical pattern, which is the existing bricks and mortar competitors would go to their state and local regulators and say, protect us against these uh, new competitors e-commerce that's coming in There, there was a report that was written i think in 1999 by the public policy institute which was the think tank of the democratic leadership council so the sort of centrist bill clinton democratic think tank and they wrote a report called revenge of the disintermediated which is essentially the middleman between the producer and the consumer middlemen do a very good job of getting local regulations to protect them and insist you got to go through me and they put all of these barriers to entry. Um, What was fascinating, so we had hearings in all 10 industries, every single one of the industries, there was at least one witness who said, you know, I've looked at these other barriers in the other nine industries and wow, these are terrible. These hurt consumers, they drive up costs, they're terrible, but our industry's different. There's a reason to protect our industry. I look, one of the more ludicrous ones I mentioned funeral directors and caskets. There are a lot of states that say to sell a casket you must be a licensed mortician. You must be able to do embalming and prepare a body. And the problem is, okay, so look, funeral homes make all their markup on caskets. That's where the cash is is selling caskets and, you know, do you really love grandma? Well, then you need the 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 special deluxe. Um The problem was funeral homes have started to see competition from other competitors, online competitors selling caskets much cheaper because there's a massive markup in caskets. Now pause to think for a second, whether in order to sell a pine box, you need to know how to embalm someone. I I recognize if you're gonna embalm someone, you ought to know how to embalm someone. But if you're trying to sell a pine box, there's no reason you you should have to know how to embalm someone that's one example but it's all about the markup. by the way contact lenses in 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 mike's state 1-800-CONTACT is, is based in utah they sell contacts online well well uh, the optometrists hate this because their markup they do an eye exam but they make all their money selling you contact lenses at much higher than they cost and so they don't want the competition um, The Institute for Justice, based in in D.C., does a fabulous job of bringing litigation on behalf of people, small business owners who want to compete, who are being prevented. Hair braiders are a great example, where you you have cosmetology boards that shut down. If you want, uh, you know, you've got a lot of instances of, say, African-American young women that want to start a business hair braiding, and yet they have to go through sometimes a year or two years of training and certification And it's a barrier to entry, whereas if you've got to feed, you're a single mom, you got to feed your kids, you may not have a year or two to devote to all this training. You may already know how to braid hair. And, you know, last I checked, the market contests that. It's not exactly like there's a massive public safety issue. If you braid hair wrong, I got to say, you know, my daughters are braiding my wife's hair most nights. Um, If you do it wrong, your customers will leave. I think focusing on removing barriers to to small businesses and entrepreneurs is very powerful in terms of unleashing the economy. Two thirds of all new jobs come from small businesses and occupational licensing serves as a barrier to make it more expensive for more small businesses to enter. I think as conservatives, as libertarians, as believers in economic liberty, we ought to be fighting for the rights of entrepreneurs. It helps. It helps the little guy, it helps young guy, young people and 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 African Americans and Hispanics and single moms and, and those without vast resources to be able to start a business and 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 compete. And and, and, and I think that's very powerful.
2: Gentlemen, let me turn to some questions from the audience. The, the first question actually deals with small businesses. Uh, We have businesses large and small that have shifted production lines from the widgets that they ordinarily make over to the production of various types of uh, safety equipment and the like that are necessary to respond to the pandemic. And it takes a while to shift over a production line. And when we no longer need those sorts of uh, pieces of equipment and the numbers that are being produced, these companies will shift back. During that period when they shift back, they won't be able to, to sell uh, because they're in the process of just re-equipping their facilities. The question is, what what sort of situation will happen? Uh, will there be a, another lag period where businesses turn down as they start shifting out of uh, equipment for the pandemic and back to their old equipment? Uh, What, if anything, can be done about this? And hopefully this will go rather quickly, but uh, is that going to slow down the overall recovery?
1: And so I'll jump in on this one. Um, It's a good question. Uh, It depends on the circumstances in which the business changed their production lines. Um, but, But let me take a slightly different tack on this question. I think the most important and far-reaching foreign policy consequence of this pandemic is going to be a fundamental reassessment of the United States' relationship with China. That, That China, the communist government of China, bears enormous responsibility and culpability for this pandemic. They lied, they covered it up, they suppressed, they punished, the heroic Chinese whistleblowers that tried to stop this pandemic early on. And one of the things this crisis has illustrated is the incredible vulnerability that the United States has to China in terms of of our supply chain and critical infrastructure. Let's take, for example, medical equipment, PPE, an enormous percentage of the PPE in the world is produced in China, whether it's masks or gowns or gloves, pharmaceuticals, the chinese communist government very systematically very strategically and very deliberately targeted pharmaceuticals and they did so not from an economic perspective but from a national security perspective where they created cartels in china to go after specific pharmaceuticals and essentially to bankrupt u.s production of those pharmaceuticals so right now a massive percentage of of america's Pharmaceuticals and the ingredients for pharmaceuticals are manufactured in China, whether you're talking about antibiotics, whether you're talking about blood pressure medication, heart medication, cancer medication, Alzheimer's medication, anti-anxiety medication, anti-depressive medication, all sorts of medicines that we rely on, uh, China is getting more and more of a monopoly on producing. And The vulnerability of that was highlighted during this pandemic when one state owned newspaper in China explicitly threatened to cut off pharmaceuticals from the United States as a tool of economic warfare. Now, if they were to do that, that's not just economic warfare, that's actual real warfare. That's cutting off needed medicines and literally threatening the lives potentially of millions of Americans. Personally, I think it is foolish to allow ourselves to be so dependent on China for our supply chain that the lives of Americans hang in the balance of the whims of the communist government of China. And and, and I fully expect over the next coming weeks and months and years, we are gonna have an extended debate about how to decouple our economies and, and, and how to ensure that, that critical infrastructure is here in the United States. That means more pharmaceutical production. So the question about lines that have been shifted over to PPE or to pharmaceutical production, um, I'm hopeful some of those lines will stay producing it, but I think we may well be looking at tax and regulatory policy to to, to try to make it easier uh, for critical infrastructure to actually survive in the United States and withstand China's assault. I can tell you one example of legislation I just introduced looking at rare earth minerals, rare earth minerals that are needed for a number of our defense technologies, for a number of our high-tech technologies. Uh, To a large extent, we've almost entirely stopped producing them, stopped mining them in the United States. Both the regulatory costs are so high, but also China has moved in to, to capitalize and monopolize rare earth minerals. So I introduced legislation that would create um strong beneficial tax treatment to developing rare earth minerals here because if China cuts us off we don't want our national security to be vulnerable to the whims of communist China i believe that 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 China represents the single greatest geopolitical threat to the united states over the next century and and, and i think we're going to have very extensive discussions about how to make sure that China doesn't have a stranglehold on the ability of the United States to defend itself.
2: Let me ask, uh, historically the Supreme Court has allowed Congress and the states pretty much to to regulate states as they see fit. We don't treat economic liberty as being as valuable as other personal liberties. Given the fact that we now have to get millions of people back to work, Is it time for that to change? Uh, Is it time for the Supreme Court to re-examine the very low level of protection it gives to economic liberties, seeing as how we have millions of people out of work and we need to get them back to be productive members of the economy? State laws that are arbitrary, therefore only hurt the entire nation in this regard. Is it time for the Supreme Court to re-examine its economic liberties jurisprudence, or is it time for Congress to take a more aggressive approach in preempting burdensome state uh, and local regulations? And this is a toss-up. This is a question from an audience member, and
0: it's for either of you. Insofar as the questioner is referring to the Supreme Court's 1904 decision in Locker versus New York, I, I, I would not favor a return to that. I, I think that's a dangerous form of jurisprudence uh, that uh, looks to... What we now call substantive due process as a tool for uh, the federal judiciary to tell states what they can't do. I understand the point. I'm a huge believer in economic liberty, and it's something that factors into every decision that I make. I also think it's important to keep the federal courts and the Congress, for that matter, focused on federal issues, issues that are actually covered by the U.S. law or, or by the U.S. Constitution. I think one of the ways, uh, the, the most profound way that federal lawmakers and federal jurists can uh, defend and protect economic liberty is by focusing on restoring the twin structural protections of the Constitution. A lot of times when we think about constitutional protections, we think about substantive uh, limitations, uh, the thou shalt nots of the Constitution. It's every bit as important, I would argue, uh, that Like Justice Scalia, uh, before he passed away a a few years ago, used to say that the substantive protections in the Constitution aren't worth anything. They're not worth more than the paper they're printed on unless you have federalism and separation of powers in place. You've got the vertical protection of federalism that keeps most of the power at the state and local level, and the horizontal protection of separation of powers that says within the federal government, we're going to have one branch that makes the law, one branch that interprets it, and one branch that enforces that. We've drifted badly from both federalism and separation of powers over the last 80 years. And our our drift away from federalism has helped perpetuate our drift away from separation of powers. We would have much less uh, economic interference by government in general if we started to restore these things. And if we had the assistance of the courts in saying, for example, this or that doesn't belong in the federal government because it's a purely local economic activity. Likewise, if they would start enforcing separation of powers by not allowing Congress any longer to just uh, open-endedly delegate to an executive branch agency the task of making law, that too would have the effect of uh, opening up economic liberty.
2: Gentlemen, we have only about a minute left, so I want to give each of you 30 seconds to sort of offer any final remarks. Uh, Senator Cruz, you're up first.
1: So I'm going to use my 30 seconds just to emphatically echo what Mike just said. Um, Listen, I am passionate about economic liberty, but I'm equally passionate about the structural constraints in our constitution. And federalism enables all 50 states to be what Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis called laboratories of democracy. That means, so I think Lochner was wrong, as as Mike said. I don't think, if, if New York wants to set minimum wage rules for bakers i think that's a really bad policy idea and i think new york has the constitutional authority to do it if california wants to enact socialized medicine that's terrible policy and yet california has the constitutional authority to do it and the beauty of federalism is if you don't like it you can pack up and move to come to a place that protects your economic liberty so i don't think we should have judges making policy decisions even if it's striking down bad policy. Instead, it ought to be democratic accountability with the structural constraints that are in the Constitution.
0: Senator Lee? Federalism and separation of powers tend, when we follow them, to give more Americans access to more of the kind of government they want and less of the kind of government they don't want. When we hear people in this day and age talking about how unfortunate it is that it's grown so contentious in Washington, It should be no surprise to them that this has occurred as a result of our concentration of power excessively in the hands of the few within Washington, D.C. You put all the eggs in that basket, you're going to have contention. Just like if you had a homeowners association that was originally in charge of trash removal and lighting in the common areas. Uh, Once it starts expanding into also deciding what kind of grass and flowers you could plant in your yard, and then and starts telling you how many servings of green leafy vegetables your children have to eat uh, every single day. Uh, the, the broader it expands its authority, the more contentious and unsustainable that association is going to be. The federal government is like under that, and it's, uh, it's exceeded its mandate. It's up to the American people, the American voters, and those they elect to the Senate, the House of Representatives, and the White House to restore that balance that we have relinquished long ago.
2: Senator Cruz, Senator Lee, on behalf of the Heritage Foundation, and personally, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to join with us today, to give us your views, and for fighting for the freedoms and liberties that you both have described. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. God bless.